0: Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Now if all we had was the gospel of Mark, we might think that this was the first time Jesus ever approached Jerusalem. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus visited Jerusalem on many occasions. As a matter of fact, even if Mark hadn't specifically told us it, we could have surmised it. Because Jewish, Jesus excuse me, was a devout Jewish man. And any devout Jewish man of his day would try the very best he could to make it to Jerusalem for the major feasts for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles, and for Passover. And Jesus, just like any devout Jewish man, had been to Jerusalem many, many times before to attend these important feasts. But this was a different visit to Jerusalem. The whole Gospel of Mark has been building up to this point, where Jesus comes to the city of Jerusalem, not just as a visitor, not just as a teacher, but as the Messiah, And in preparation for this visit, Jesus says, I have to enter the city in a specific way. I'm not going to just walk in through the gates as I've done before. I'm not going to be carried along just with a bunch of other people. No, this is going to be a special visit to the city of Jerusalem. And I need to come in a special way. And so Jesus had arranged it beforehand. And he sends his disciples to finalize the arrangements. And he says, come, set it all up so that I can enter into Jerusalem riding in on a colt you notice, too, it says in verse 2 that it was a colt tied on which no one has sat. I guess that's a miracle right there, right? Not that I know that much about horses, but I've seen movies, and apparently they're hard to ride if they've never been ridden before. Not for Jesus. He's the creator of all things. And he says, I created you, Mr. Colt. I'm going to ride you right now, and let's go into the city of Jerusalem. And so it was all fulfilled, just as Jesus said, because he wanted just the right environment, just the right setting for what we find beginning here at verse 7. Let's look at it together where it says, Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them out on the road. And those who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I don't know about you, but I like this little picture from the life of Jesus. I just like it because it feels so right. You know, for most of Jesus' ministry, he was despised and rejected of men. Oh, certainly great crowds followed him and adored him, but many people in those crowds only followed him either because they were hoping he would work a miracle of, of making bread out of nothing so that they could have a free lunch, or they were hoping to see some spectacular miracle. Many, many of the people who followed Jesus did it purely for entertainment. And if they could be entertained by Jesus, great. But as soon as he gave a serious call to discipleship, a serious call to following him, many of those left. He was misunderstood by many, neglected by many, disappointed by many. Friends, oftentimes his audience rejected any kind of personal commitment to him and they didn't adore him the way that he should be adored. But on this day, it was all different. On this day, they lavished praise and attention on Jesus. Why they even use their jackets, their outer garments, their clothes as a saddle for Jesus. How about that? Taking off your jacket, putting it on the colt, and saying, sit on this, Jesus. We don't want you to sit on the colt. It'll make your clothes smell. Let my jacket smell instead. And say, so here, put it. Here's your saddle, Jesus. And then they took off their jacket and say, well, we don't want the colt that you're riding on to step on the ground. We'll lay out a red carpet of palm branches and of jackets. Let them walk upon those things. You see, friends, especially considering the expense and the value of clothing in that day, that was generous, generous praise. Friends, it feels so good because for much of Jesus's ministry, he was looked at with such a critical eye. People doubted him. People rejected him. Not on this day. On this day, they praised him. On this day, they worshiped him. Look at what they said in verse seven. It says they brought the to Jesus. They threw their garments on it. And then down into verse nine, those who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, for most of his ministry, Jesus discouraged these kind of outbursts of praise. He would heal a man and say, don't tell anybody. People would cry out and say, well, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He'd say, let's keep it quiet. Why? Well, it wasn't that Jesus doubted who he was in any regard. No. Oftentimes, he said, let's keep these things a little quiet because he didn't want so many more crowds to follow. him. It made his ministry difficult. So he said, let's kind of keep it under wraps, but not on this day. You want to worship me? You want to praise me? Then do it. I'll receive it. Matter of fact, Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, when people objected to this lavish praise being put upon the Son of God, Jesus said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus said, you can't stop this praise. Even if the people were to be quiet, the stones would cry out and worship me. Which makes me wish that everybody would have been quiet for a moment so we could see what the stones would have said. Well, they would have worshipped him. All of creation worshipped Jesus. And the the crowd was just honoring him. They were praising him. Matter of fact, they praised him with words and images and sentences that come from Psalm 118, where they said, Hosanna, that comes from the phrase, save now, from Psalm 119. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's right from Psalm 118. They worshipped him, they praised him, and because they were quoting scriptural friends, their praise was scriptural. I think it's important that we worship God in a scriptural way, that we worship him, as the Bible says, in spirit and in truth. You know, you just can't offer to God any kind of praise that you want to offer. You need to offer scriptural praise. It's important to offer God the kind of praise that he wants, to praise him as he wants to be praised. Now, man, we understand this principle very well from marriage. Marriage. You understand that as much as you might be tempted to do so, when it comes Christmas time or birthday time for your wife, you can't buy her the present that you want. You need to buy her the present that she wants. And so if you golf and your wife doesn't, don't buy her a set of golf clubs. If you surf and your wife doesn't, don't buy her a surfboard. Don't buy your wife power tools unless she specifically asks for them. (laughs) It's for you. It's not really for her. And she sees through it in a minute. We know you bought that boat and tried to say it was a family thing. And what a great family thing it would be. Well, God sees your heart, husband, whether or not it was a family thing indeed. You get the idea, don't you? If you want to please your wife, you find out what pleases your wife. And do that for her, not what pleases you. Nothing may please you more than going out and buying a new cordless drill, but it's not going to please your wife. Now, it's the same way when we worship the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. And where do you find out what pleases him? You find it in his word. I ran across a passage in a Wednesday night study that will talk about this Wednesday night. I'm very excited about it. Hosea chapter 14, verse 2. It says that when we come and return to the Lord, it says, take words with you and come to the Lord. You know what that tells us? Is that just offering to God the thoughts of our heart, it's not enough. Now, I'm happy that the thoughts of our heart are inclined towards God, and that's good. But he says, take words with you. It's not enough just to think good thoughts towards God. You know, just sort of beam them up towards heaven. God wants to hear from you. He wants to hear you speak to him. He says, take words with you. Then again, in Psalm 100, verse 2, it says that we're to come into his presence with singing. God wants to hear you sing. Nobody else may want to hear you sing. But God wants to hear you sing and you may be holding me I may say, well, I'm not going to sing. I'll empty out the church. You know, uh, who wants to impose that on anybody? God wants to hear you sing. He says, come into his presence with singing. Now, you may not like it. I grant it. You may not. But again, it's not about pleasing you. It's about pleasing him. And he says he wants it. Well, husbands, the same thing. You understand the principle you're doing something for somebody else, not for yourself. So if he says, Come to him with words, that's how we come. If he says, Come to him with singing, that's how we come. You know, in Psalm 134, verse 2, it says it were to come to God with hands lifted up. Maybe the first time you've come to church and you saw people raising their hands in time of worship. It seems so strange. I know people who almost broke out laughing when they've seen that. I said, this is the strangest thing. What are people doing? I I don't understand this at all. It looks so strange to them. Friends, they're just doing what the Bible says. It says, lift your hands and praise God. Matter of fact, in the Old Testament times, in that world, that was the posture of prayer. Our kind of modern or contemporary posture of prayer, we like to fold our hands and close our eyes and and bow our heads. And that's sort of the, the posture of prayer. It's sort of shut out all distractions. And there's a purpose in that. But then again, there's there's another thing that this says before God. In the ancient Jewish world, they would pray with their hands lifted up, with their eyes looking towards heaven and say, I'm looking to you, God, and I'm reaching out to you to receive something to you and to surrender to you, right? Get your hands up, surrender to God. Come out with your hands up, it's as if the Lord says. (laughs) Surrender unto me. So friends, it's a scriptural way to worship God. And so you say, well, Lord, if this pleases you, I will do it. I'm not doing it for me. I may feel silly. I may feel foolish. We give gifts to other people that we feel foolish buying, but we know it will please them, and so we do it. This is where it gets tricky, though, because it's one thing to lift your hands in worship or to do something else in worship. It's another thing to feel like you're being compelled to do it. Sometimes we chafe under that. You know, and so the Bible says that we lift our hands in worship to God, but it's not saying that it's the only way to worship God. It's saying what's to sing and to speak to God, but it's not the only way. Uh, one way I like to examine this is when it comes down to the posture that we should have when we worship. You know, I can make a scriptural case to you that we should stand when we worship God. Uh, come, you saints of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. So we should stand in our worship of God. I say, well, wait a minute, though, I could make a scriptural case to you that we should bow down to God in our worship of him. Because the Bible says, come, let us worship and bow down. And so we should stand, but then bow. But then I can make a scriptural case to you that we should kneel as we worship God. Because come, let us worship and bow down and kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker, it says in the Psalms. So maybe you should stand and bow, but then have one knee kneeling. But then I can make a scriptural case to you that we should sit as we worship the Lord because the Bible says that we are seated in heavenly places with Jesus Christ and that's our posture together as Christians right now. We're seated in the heavenlies with him, so why not worship him from that place of being seated in the heavenlies? So I don't know how you stand and bow and kneel and sit all together at the same time, but then you could throw in where the Bible says that we should be laid out prostrate before God just laid out You get the point, don't you? I can't stand before you and say, well, standing, that's the way to worship God. Or kneeling, that's the way to worship God. But here's where it comes down to our hearts, friends. If God puts it on your heart, I want you to raise your hands. If God puts it on your heart, I want you to stand before me and you say, I will not raise my hands, Lord, then something's wrong. If you say, Lord, I will not stand. If you say, Lord, I will not sing. If you say, Lord, I will not kneel. All of those are scriptural expressions of praise. But when we say, no, Lord, I will not do that, then something is wrong. Without sounding too harsh, I want to say, isn't it mostly just pride? I don't want to be made to look foolish, God, and so I won't do that. So, friends, as the Lord prompts you, raise your hands or kneel. Now, again, there's another aspect to it that should be discussed in the midst of all of this. And it's a simple aspect of love towards your neighbor. And as much as if God puts it on your heart to raise your hands or to kneel or to stand or to sit, we also know that God hasn't put it on your heart to distract your neighbor. And so if you say, well, the Lord just put it on my heart to run laps around the sanctuary here and worship to him. We'll say, brother, sister, why don't you just do that in your own private devotions at home? You can run laps around the house or around your room. Because if you do that, you may be having the most wonderful time of worship in your life. But everybody else will be thinking, what is that lunatic doing running around the sanctuary? Or if you feel, well, the Lord's put on my heart to raise my hands But that's not good if you're raising your hands and you're waving them back and forth. You feel like, well, that's what God wants me to do. Again, you may be in bliss of worship, but everybody sitting behind you is instantly thinking, what is this going on? You see, when we worship together, we think not only about ourselves and our own personal experience of worship. We say, I want to bless my neighbor, too. And so I'll worship the Lord as he puts it on my heart, but not in any way that's going to draw attention to myself. I don't want people to focus on me. I want them to focus on Jesus. I want Jesus to be the focus. I want Jesus to be the center of it. Well, on this day, Jesus was the center, wasn't he? how worshipped he was. People crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David. And we see this just feels so good, Jesus being worshipped so wonderfully. But might I say that Jesus wasn't being worshipped really for his sake. What I mean by that is it's not that Jesus had some kind of self-esteem problem and needed affirmation from the crowd. No, friends, you know... The worship that we offer to God, it's not so much that it does God good, though it blesses him. The real benefit is that it does us good. We are creatures created with the need to worship. And until you find, and until that purpose is fulfilled in your life, something's missing. Something's missing until you've entered into real worship. And when I say that, maybe some of you don't really know what I'm talking about. Then make it a point of prayer and say, God, this year show me what real worship is about. I want to know. Maybe others, you know what I'm talking about when I say real worship. You say, well, then God bring me to that place often. I want to live there. There's something else that strikes me about this whole event. When you look at it, we, we call it the triumphal entry. Jesus coming into Jerusalem in triumph, and everybody celebrating, everybody waving palm branches, and the clothes are before him, and it's great. And we, this is Jesus' moment of triumph. But if you would have gone back in that day and said, what, you know, look at, this is the triumphal entry of Jesus, people would have looked at you, and they would have blinked, and they'd say, what, are you crazy? they say, do you know what a triumphal entry is? A triumphal entry is the kind of thing they give to a general in Rome when he comes in after a decisive victory. You see, in that day, they knew how to have a triumphal entry. The the, the Roman general, if he had won a complete and a decisive victory, if he had killed at least 5,000 enemy troops, then they would give him a special parade through the streets of Rome. And the first in line of the parade would be all the great treasures and and booty that he had captured, all the great treasures from the, the nations that he had conquered. And they would parade that through the streets. Next would come the thousands and thousands of slaves and prisoners of war. They would come in shackles and be trudged down the street. This is the victory parade. And then would come the legions marching unit by unit, uh, group by group, marching in precision, this awesome display of power and force. And then finally would come the general himself on a golden chariot with magnificent white horses pulling it, waving to the crowds, and they'd be shouting out praise and adoration to him. Priests would walk through the streets, billowing out censers full of incense and all sorts of praise and adoration being given to this general. They'd end up at the Colosseum, and they'd sentence some of the prisoners to be mauled by wild beasts and to be killed for the entertainments of the crowd. And they'd say, well, that's a triumphal entry. This? This is a poor Galilean peasant sitting on a few coats, riding on a colt, coming into town. But you know, it was plenty triumphant for Jesus. Even though it didn't fit the image of what a triumphal entry should be in that day. You see, if Jesus would have fulfilled the image of a triumphal entry, he would have come on a horse, not on a colt. But he said, no, I don't care about image. I'm the reality. I'm the substance. Now, I find interesting about the rest of the text that we're going to cover this morning, all the way to verse 26, you find this constant examination between image and reality. And I think it's so relevant for our age. You know, we are age, we are ge- a generation captivated with image instead of reality. You see it in politicians, don't you? Well, what's important to them is image, not reality. Y- you see it in advertising. What's important is image, not reality. You see it in the lives that we live. You see it on television. Quite popular today are these new kinds of shows. They call them reality television. There's nothing real about it. You know, I mean, it has the appearance of reality, but it's actually a very slickly crafted appearance of reality. And the things they don't want you to see, you don't see. You see the image, not the reality. Well, friends, here's the question that we're going to be confronted with several times in this chapter until we come to verse 26 is this whole idea of image versus reality. Look at it right here in verse 11. It says, Jesus went to Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. When he came into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, he left. He just looked around, but he looked around. He was doing an inspection. He's saying, I'm the Lord of this temple. I want to see how image matches up with reality, and I'm here to judge this. I'm here to assess it. So now look at what he does the next day, verse 12. Now, the next day, when they had come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one ever eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. You know, when we hear that, our first reaction is kind of, Jesus, mellow out. It's just a fig tree. (laughs) No, but you see, the, the whole key phrase here in verses 12, 13, and 14 is this phrase that says, He found nothing but leaves. Now, I'm not a botanist or arborist. People know all about trees and such. But from the research that I've read, this particular kind of fig tree that they're talking about has a very interesting characteristic. Most trees bear their leaves first, then the fruit comes, but not this fig tree. This fig tree, the figs come at the same time or even slightly before the leaves appear. And so if you have leaves, you should always find figs. But what Jesus did was he came to it and he said, there's the leaves Where's the figs? There's no fruit. I want you to know that Jesus cursed this fig tree, not because it had leaves, but because it didn't have fruit. There was no fruit there, but it was advertising as if it did have fruit, because on that kind of fig tree, if you see leaves, there should be fruit. You see the difference here between image and reality? Oh, it had the image of being a fruitful tree. But no, it was just image. There was no reality. And so Jesus said, you're going to be cursed. Let no one ever eat fruit from you again. Again, the tree was cursed for its pretense of leaves, not its lack of fruit. It can be just like that in our lives, right? Pretty image, lack of fruit. People look at your life, or Jesus looks at it today, doesn't he? Says, well look, a fine churchgoer. Of course there's a Christian. They have a Bible and they, they it's right there in their lap. They didn't even ask for a Bible this morning. They brought their own. Look at one of them for Christian. There's the leaves. Where's the fruit? Is the fruit there? You see, our world is so captivated with image instead of substance, but it doesn't fool Jesus for a moment. He looks and he sees the reality. So he came to the tree. Well, great, there's figs here because I see leaves. No figs? Then this is an offense to me because it's pretending to be something that it's not. Then he does the same kind of thing here at verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares to the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written that my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of thieves, and the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Oh, you see, Jesus comes to the temple, and there he sees the same contrast between image and substance. The image was it well, this is the temple, this is the place where God is worshipped. Everybody worships the Lord here, but that wasn't the substance. The substance was that it was more like a swap meet than a place of worship. Because the only place where the Gentiles could come and pray, the court of the Gentiles, it was desecrated and made into a marketplace. There's Jesus walking around the court of Gentiles, and he sees the money changers. And there they are, they're exchanging money. Now, why would you exchange money in the temple courts? Well, because every Jewish man was commanded to bring a tax every year to support the work of the temple. But they commanded that the tax had to be brought not in the normal Roman or Judean currency. It had to be brought in a special temple shekel. And so where did you get the special temple shekel? From the money changers there in the court of the Gentiles. And let me tell you, they didn't have a very good exchange rate, and they charged a high commission. They were ripping people off. But everybody had to do it, so you had to do your business with the money changers. Well, then they had the other people, the sacrificial animals. Because when you brought an animal for sacrifice, the priest had to look it over and approve it. So he would look over this fine lamb that you brought. You wanted to sacrifice to the Lord. He'd look it over and say, well, my, I see a freckle on that lamb. You can't offer it to the Lord. But wouldn't you know it that we have our own stable of priestly approved lambs right over there. You go over there and you can sell them your poor, miserable looking lamb. And we'll buy uh, and we'll give you another one for a small fee. Well, you know how that worked. People were getting ripped off all over the place. There you could see it. It's like an auction house. It's like a swap meet. And Jesus comes in there and he says, I'm not having this. He overturns the tables. He drives out the money changers and those selling. And he says, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations. And the nations can't come because this is the only place where the Gentiles can come and pray. And you've desecrated it. You give the image of being a place of worship. But it's not that at all. The substance says that it's a marketplace. Check this out, verse 20. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. I bet that frightened them. They said, whoa, you know, Jesus, I hope you don't get sore at me. I want you to notice something. The Old Testament is filled with what we might call destructive miracles, Plagues miraculously come and devastate Egypt. Elisha is tormented by some uh, young men, and so he calls down a couple of bears upon them, and they devour them. And all sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, there's these destructive miracles. This is the only, if you might call, destructive miracle that you find in all the ministry of Jesus. And aren't we thankful that it's focused against a tree and not against a person? Now, I guess a person might say, well, you know, this shows Jesus to be very environmentally insensitive for uh, destroying this tree. Well, he destroyed it for a lesson, didn't he? And what did you do with that Christmas tree that you cut down at the Christmas tree farm? You wrecked a tree to decorate your home. Well, I think Jesus had a more noble purpose than this. And so, no, we should not criticize Jesus at all for what he did, even in this miracle, but I bet it gave the disciples a bit of a scare. And this is what he replies, verse 22. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Oh, friends. Oh, friends. Why did Jesus say, have faith in God, when he stood by the withered fig tree? Well, I think he he meant it probably in two senses. He said, if you don't want to be unfruitful, if you don't just want to have a spiritual image without substance, then have faith in God. Isn't that what we lack when it's all about image? Image makes you trust in yourself. It makes you trust in what other people think of you. But no, when you have faith in God, then you're concerned about a real relationship with him. So Jesus says, have faith in God. But the other thing that Jesus meant was he said, are you amazed that I could speak this to the tree and then it would wither and die? Where did such power come from? He said, well, have faith in God. And if you want spiritual power in your life, that's where it comes from. It comes from faith. Or even you could say to this mountain, be removed, it'll be removed. Whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now, this is a marvelous, marvelous invitation to prayer. Don't you think you and I should read this and say, Lord, how prayerless we are. What great power, what great privilege you've given us before your throne, and yet we neglect it. Friends, I want you to understand something. This is a beautiful blank check that God has given us in prayer. A blank check. But it's a blank check drawn upon the account of Jesus. You know, Jesus said, whatever things you ask in my name, I will do them. And isn't that a great thing that God has given us? Well, don't you want to know what it means to pray in Jesus' name? It doesn't mean to just tack on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. You can pray a prayer that's totally out of the name of Jesus, but then tack on in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. No, no. To pray in the name of Jesus means that you are praying according to his nature, according to his character, according to his will, and say, Lord, I come in Jesus' name, not in my own name. I come in Jesus' name. I come to draw on his account. And so it shows us the beautiful sort of guideline, this this blank check that we have in prayer. It's a blank check, but only on the account of Jesus. Many people read a promise like this, and they say, oh, thank you, Lord. Lord because I want that new Rolls-Royce that you saw in the magazine. You say, well, I want that. And so here it is right here. I just pray and I believe and it come to pass. Whatever I say in your prayer and so I say, Lord, give me that Rolls-Royce in Jesus' name. Problem is your prayer goes up to heaven. He goes, well, there's no Rolls-Royce in the account of Jesus for you. Why don't you go back to my word and see what Jesus has on account for you? then ask for whatever you will in Jesus' name. We don't have to be afraid of the bold promises that God gives us in regard to prayer. We need to use them. I don't want anybody to look at this and say, well, I need to start figuring out reasons why this doesn't mean what it says. God says that he will give you abundant and glorious answer to prayer. Now use it. Now use it. Go forth and pray boldly. Just pray in Jesus' name. Just pray what would Jesus ask for? What does Jesus want done? What does Jesus want done in your life? Then pray for it boldly. What does Jesus want done in this church? Then pray for it boldly. What does Jesus want done? Then ask him to do his will in your life. Beautiful promise. Now look how we wrap up this morning with verses 25 and 26. Whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. It seems almost out of place, doesn't it? Forgiveness? Wait a minute. You know, first Jesus came in in the triumphal entry. Then he cleared out the the temple and chased out the money changers and those selling the sacrificial animals. And then he wiped out a fig tree by cursing it. And now he's telling us about forgiveness. I don't get the connection. I want you to see that maybe what Jesus is implying is one of two things. First of all, the connection could be that a lack of faith is not the only thing that hinders your prayers. Maybe it's a lack of forgiveness, too. You said, you want to know why you don't have spiritual power? Well, first thing is, you don't have enough faith. You need to trust God more. But here's the other thing. Your heart is so filled with unforgiveness and anger and bitterness towards another person that it's diverting the spiritual power in your life. Maybe that's a word for some here this morning. You need to just let go of it. You need to let go of that thing. You need to do what the Apostle Paul commanded in Romans chapter 12, that as much as it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Just give it up. Grant forgiveness. There may be another connection here, too. Jesus just spoke of the great work that faith can do. It can move mountains, but it can also make an unforgiving heart into a forgiving heart. I don't have any hesitancy in saying to you that it would be a lesser miracle for many people today. A lesser miracle to look over to Mount McCoy over there that has the cross on top of it and by faith to lift it up and to cast it into the sea. That would be a lesser miracle than to liberate some hard, unforgiving hearts into the place of forgiveness. So how about you? how's the image versus reality thing working in your life? You have the image of a Christian, but a true Christian forgives. You have the image of faith, but do you really have faith in God? You have the image of being a worshiper of Jesus, but is the reality, the substance there? Jesus brings us back to these points all the time, and he says, I don't want to see only leaves. I want to see fruit. And here's the great thing about it. You want to bear fruit, don't you? You do. If you're born again by the Spirit of God, you want to bear fruit to God. And it's almost the relief of being caught saying, Yes, Lord, I have been living too much on image, not enough on reality. Lord, help me get back to the reality. That's what I want. That's what I ask you to move in my life with. The Lord is so ready to meet you in that place right now. He's ready. He wants it even more than you do. He wants to build in your life the reality of a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be great if we could paint over the year 2001, the idea that all this year was the year that we moved beyond image into substance. And every one of us walked with a real relationship with the Lord, with all the fruit, with all the power in prayer, with all the forgiveness that that means. It would change our lives, it would change our families, it would change our community. So God says, let's walk in it right now. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for myself because I need God to work in my life on these things. I'm going to pray for you, too, because I think there's probably more than one heart here that needs to forgive, needs to trust, needs to move from just image into substance. Let's pray together right now. Father, Lord, I pray that you'd work it deeply in my heart. When it comes to this whole issue of image and substance, Lord, I I think of what Isaiah said. How he said, I I'm a man of unclean lips who lives in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And Lord, I, I see that I'm a man too impressed with image in myself and in others. And I live in the midst of a people in a culture. That's too impressed with images. Father, give us a love for reality. For substance. We're not content, Lord, to just have the image of worshipers. We really want to be it. We're not content, Lord, to have just the image of fruitfulness to you. We really want to have it. God, we're not content just to have the image of faith and trust in you. We're not content just to to have the image of Christians who forgive. We want it, Lord, to be real in our lives. Lord, I pray that you'd set some hearts free this morning. I pray, Lord, for any here this morning who don't know you, who haven't trusted you, that you draw them into the sweetness of a real relationship with Jesus. Father, won't you pour out your spirit upon us? We need it, Lord. And we ask that that over it all, we could say that this was a time, a season in our life where not only we had the image of wonderful Christians, oh, but Lord, we had all the substance behind it. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And how wonderful it is to pray, knowing, Lord, that we're praying so according to the heart of Jesus, to pray knowing that this is a prayer that will be answered. We pray it, Lord, in Jesus' name, drawing it on his account. And all those who agree said amen.